I was asked an interesting question this week. I wonder how you would answer it. The question was this. If you get baptised, does that mean you have to go to church every week? From someone looking in on our faith, that's a pretty good question, isn't it? How would you reply? What would you say? Well, I'm not going to ask you to share your answers out loud with me, largely because I'm afraid that you'd have answered the question better than I did. But here is my answer, and you can see whether you agree with it or not. The strict answer to the question is no. If you get baptised, no, you don't have to be in church every week. But someone who has been baptised would want to. Christians do not have to go to church every week to earn God's favour. They do not have to go to church to merit a place in his people or to keep their salvation. They do not have to live in fear if they miss church for a particular reason, be they on holiday or unwell or having to do night shifts at their place of work. Nothing is going to happen to you if you miss church on a Sunday. And the reason for that is because as God's children, we do not live under law. We live under grace. God loves us so much that he has set us free from petty rules like this. But if we really have an understanding of who God is and the extraordinary things that he has done for us, we will want to be in church. We will want to praise and worship him as he is due. We will want to thank him and spend time with him. The Bible makes it clear that church going is good for us. The praise lifts us up from despair. The prayer meets our deepest needs. The teaching guides us when facing tough choices. The fellowship encourages us when going of life gets hard. As a baptised Christian, I am so grateful for the Lord Jesus Christ. I have committed my life to him. I don't go to church because I have to, but because I want to. I want to honour God. And I know that I benefit from spending time in his presence. That was my answer. I wonder if you agree with it. Now what is interesting about that question is that it shows me that the person who asked it is trying to explore the difference between religion and relationship. Have you ever heard somebody say, I'm a Christian, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm not religious? Maybe you've even said it yourself. What do you think is meant by that comment? What is it about religion that many believers like us don't really want to be associated with? Well, obviously I can't speak for everyone, but I guess we are thinking of religion as the pressure to conform with a load of rules. Or religion might be seen as lots of empty rituals and traditions. It might lead to a life tied up in tedium rather than one released into joy. There is a great suspicion in our society about religion. And if this is what religion means, then I guess many of us would share it. 
As Christians, first and foremost, we know that we have a living relationship with Jesus. He is with us and he is relevant to every moment of our lives, not just when we are in church. Yes, he is worthy of our very best, but he also wants the very best for us. And by his spirit, he is actively leading us into it. So as believers, we've been set free from legalistic rules and empty religion to enjoy a wonderful relationship with the Lord God of heaven and earth. I hope we're beginning to get the point. For this is the theme of our passage. What it means to be set free by Jesus. We are reading Paul's letter to the Colossians. It was written in the first century to a small group of new converts, a passionate but young church. And that church has come under attack, not just by the authorities who were generally trying to shut Christians up, but also from some very deceptive false teachers. And these teachers had come into Colossae with the aim of turning the believers' heads. They were trying to take advantage of the immaturity of their faith in an attempt to gain power and prestige for themselves. They were telling the church that they needed to add to their faith in Jesus if they really wanted to be saved. They needed to add on a few extras to the gospel if they really wanted to experience fullness of life. And in this passage, we see what some of those extras were. They were telling the believers that they need to follow special laws and observe special days and eat special food. And alongside worshipping Jesus, well, they need to worship a few of the angels as well and, and pray in certain ways. They need to treat their bodies harshly and maintain a sober austerity to life. This, supposedly, was what real faith looked like. This was how to be truly religious. This was how to become mature. And of course, teaching like this, coming from people with supposed status, was bewildering for the new converts. Should they listen? Should they go along with it? What if they were missing out on God's best as things currently stood? These teachers looked like upstanding people. Their arguments were fairly convincing. And as a result, many in the church were beginning to be tempted to drift over to their ways. We've now reached the section of the letter where Paul is at his most vehement. And he systematically takes apart the arguments of the false teachers. He's desperate to steer the church clear of this threat. And his key message is this. No one needs to add extra rules or extra practices or extra rituals to faith in Jesus. It is Christ alone who saves. And fullness of life is only found in him. All this extra religion will only tie you down and distract you from what is most important. It will only serve to take you captive when Jesus wants most of all 
to set you free. And in these eight verses, Paul announces three things that God's people have been set free of. They have freedom from the law, freedom from religious fads, and freedom from all forms of joyless piety. Let's take one at a time. First of all, Paul wants the Colossians to know that as believers in Jesus, they have been set free from the law, the Jewish law, that is. Paul begins this section with a sober warning. Do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The Colossians were not to allow themselves to be judged by people who thought they were more holy than them purely because they continued to follow all the minutiae of the old Jewish law. They were not to be looked down upon or made to feel inadequate by the false teachers who still observed all the old food laws and the Old Testament festivals and the sacrifice ceremonies that were held on a new moon or a particularly strict interpretation of the Sabbath. The reason being that all of this was to be seen in a new perspective now that Jesus had come. And to understand this, we need to know something about why God gave the law in the Old Testament in the first place. You see, it had a very particular role. Following the law was never meant to be seen as the means of entrance into God's people or the way by which people earned God's love. And the reason we know that is because God had already made Israel his people 500 years before he gave them the law. He'd already rescued them en masse from Egypt. Such was his great love for them before he gave Moses even one of the Ten Commandments. The law was never meant to be a way of getting God on your side. Rather, the law had a few very specific roles to play. It was to teach the people about the holiness of God. And by contrast, their inherent sinfulness and need for a saviour. It was to give Israel guidance on how to live as well as possible in the confusing world that they were in. And how to bless the nations around them. And it was to set Israel apart, to make them distinct and noticeable until the day when God achieved his purposes through them. Now here is the key. All three of those major purposes of the law were fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the saviour that people needed to rescue them from their sin and to make them holy like God. Jesus lived the perfect life. He showed us how to live life at its best. We fulfill the law by following his example, by loving God and neighbour and by keeping the Sermon on the Mount. And it was Jesus that was the fulfilment of Israel. By dying on the cross and rising again, Messiah of Israel had become the saviour of the whole world. And God's people are now made up of those from every tribe and tongue and nation. There's no need to be distinctly Jewish anymore. Now I know this is very condensed. 
But what we need to grasp is that everything about the Old Testament points to Jesus. It is a foretelling of him. Paul says that the law is just a shadow. Jesus is the reality. Well, what does that mean for us today? Well, it means that as Christians, we should be guided by the principles of the Old Testament law. It is still right not to lie or steal or covet. It's still wise to take a day of rest each week and worship God as he is due. But we are free from that sense of onerous demand. The minutiae of the Old Testament law, such as not eating pork or wearing clothes of one fabric, are simply not needed anymore now that Jesus is here. And no one should ever make us live in fear of breaking them. Christians have been set free from the law and all its penalties because of Jesus, the one who fulfilled it all. And what is required of us now is for us to live with a single-minded devotion towards Christ. Quite literally, if you truly love Jesus, you can do what you like. Because Jesus himself will guide you into wanting things that honour God. So is there a law about going to church on Sundays? No, not at all. But we will want to. We will want to come and be with Jesus and praise him as he deserves if we've really taken in what he did for us. The only law that exists for us now is the one that Jesus has written on our hearts by his spirit. And if we and the Colossians continue to read God's word and worship the Lord and follow that law on our hearts, we will find that we will fulfill all that God wants for us. So Paul has announced freedom from the law and any false teacher trying to force it back upon you can get stuffed. The next thing he takes on is religious fads. We've been set free from these as well. In verses 18 to 19, we get another strong warning. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you. Such a person goes into great detail about what they've seen. They're puffed up with idle notions by their unspiritual mind. They've lost connection with the head, from whom the whole body grows as God causes it to grow. In the first century, the Colossians were facing articulate false teachers. On first appearance, they were very convincing. Paul challenges false humility here. So we can imagine these teachers were very pious, holier than thou. They probably fasted a lot, went round with solemn faces. Paul challenges worshipping angels. That could be literal, or it could be Paul at his sarcastic best. These false teachers were portraying themselves as being on a, a different spiritual plane to the rest of the church. They had their own complex systems of meditation and their own special prayer routines that meant they got much closer to God than the average man or woman on the street. And these teachers were clearly the type of people who made much more of their supposedly more charismatic experiences. Oh, what wonderful dreams and visions they had. 
And as they banged on about them at length, they were letting all the regular people know that they were beneath them. And if they wanted to step up, they should start praying in the same way that they did. In fact, everyone should do what these teachers did. Only their experience really counted. And this is what the young believers in Colossae were faced with every day. And Paul's great concern was that eventually it would get them down. That somehow these false teachers would make them feel less worthy or or disqualified from faith in God. And to combat this, Paul returns to the same argument that he's used all the way through this letter. The only thing believers need to know in life to receive fullness of life is Jesus. In verse 19, Paul uses the illustration of a body and a head. A human body gets its life from its head. The head thinks and sees and smells and hears and eats and drinks. The head nourishes and sustains the body. Indeed, the whole body grows up into the head. If you separate the head from the body, the body dies instantly. Well, Paul says that the same relationship exists between Jesus and the individual Christian, and between Jesus and the church as a whole. If we try to replace Jesus with rituals and fads, we will die. They simply cannot sustain us. They simply cannot meet our needs or complete us. In Jesus, we have everything that we need. We must not allow ourselves to be pressurized into adding on extras to him in the attempt to gain some great spiritual experience. It simply won't work. Now, I hope that as we listen to this, we're beginning to breathe a bit of a sigh of relief. Because even me as a church minister, I feel pressurised by the religious celebrities and other church leaders out there. Almost every month there is a new book supposedly giving a secret on how to make your church grow overnight. (laughs) And I feel pressurised by those people who, who want me to know how close to God they are. They always see great visions and they hear God speak audibly to them and they experience amazing healings every other day. And I so often feel completely inadequate to them. And sometimes I wish I could pray like them. or I wish I could meditate like them. I wish I could experience life like they do. And if I experience this pressure, then some of you must do as well. And Paul says, stop. Believers in Colossae, Andrew Burnham, what are you doing? You've been set free from all this nonsense. You've been set free from all these religious fads. You've you've been set free from all of this pressure in Jesus. Because he lives in you. By his spirit. He is with you every moment. He hears every prayer you pray, no matter how you pray it. He is guiding you to glory and one day you will see him face to face and there will be no greater spiritual experience than that. And it can only come through him. So yes, there will be good advice out there. There are good Christian books to read. And there are spiritual disciplines that we can benefit from. And there are elders in the faith that can teach us useful things about how to be a Christian. 
But as soon as people try and start forcing extras on us, or pretend that this is the only way to get closer to God, we should walk away. Because the only way to get close to God is through Jesus. And no rite or ritual, no meditative technique or special prayer will ever replace him. So as Christians, we've been set free from the law and we've been set free from religious fads as well. There is one final thing that Paul takes aim at, and it's found in verses 20 to 23. And here he takes on joyless piety. This is what he says. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom, with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. You know, at times it is difficult for us to navigate our way through the world. There are many temptations that come our way, so many alluring sights and sounds. And I know from experience that evil even tries to distort those things that are good into things that can trip us up. I enjoy football, but it can so quickly become idolatry. The joy of sex can so quickly descend into lust. The enjoyment of good food and good homes and possessions can soon become boasting or the cause of envy and greed. Our world can be a challenging place. We rarely experience life as black or white. There's a whole host of grey in between. And as a result, human beings have tended to take one of two approaches. Either we just jump into life without wanting to enjoy it as much as possible and refusing to reflect or think about what we're doing, or we try and pull ourselves out of the world completely, turning down so much that is good out of fear that somehow it might lead us astray. And neither of these two extremes work. But the false teachers in Colossae were very much advocating the second. They were seemingly appalled by the thought of indulgence. So they tried to straitjacket people with harsh rules that sucked all the joy out of life. How did Paul put it? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. And of course, at first, this austere approach to life seems very impressive. It, it appears very pious. But sadly, it quickly becomes false. Because joyless piety like this restricts life. And it demeans some of the very good things that God has made for us to enjoy. And perhaps worst of all, it often leads people into wanting others to notice them. Look at me. I don't go dancing. I don't drink alcohol. I don't waste time reading novels or watching films on TV. If only more people were like me. Setting yourself above others like the false teachers were is sheer hypocrisy. And again, Paul's response to this is blunt. Christians have been set free from all this joyless piety because they've already died to the world through Christ. 
They've put their old way of life to death and been made a new creation in Jesus. They have been born again. They have come out of the world ruled by sin and evil and entered into the kingdom of God. Now clearly this doesn't mean that we've left the world completely. Rather we're in it, but not of it. Through faith in Christ, we have been baptized into God and he now lives in us by his spirit. And the spirit's job is to guide us on how to live well. Through our conscience, the spirit will show us where the boundaries are as we are enjoying the good things in creation. You know, God wants us to enjoy living. He wants us to make the most of the present. But we can only truly do that when we know that we're waiting for a better world to come. The temptations of the world grow dim when our eyes are fully set on glory. And as Christians, we do want to please God. And we do want to put him first. And we do try to follow his commands because we know they are his best for us. But when we know the Holy Spirit within us, we don't need to no longer fear feeling joyful. We don't need to put in practices that keep pleasure under control. Because God wants good things for us. And the Spirit will guide us where we need guiding. We can set out to enjoy all that God has prepared for us. We are set free to truly live. We've covered a lot of ground, so it's time to stop. What we need to realise here is that Paul is envisioning an almost religionless 